we often also do this thing where we sort of take things like sex and we like compartmentalize them. We sort of put them over to the side and we treat them like they're somehow different than the rest of our lives. But what I actually really feel is that our sexuality in some ways is sort of a microcosm of the rest of our lives. So we bring all of the things that we believe about ourselves, that we believe about how we interact with other people, about what it means to be a good person, about what it means to communicate with someone else. Like all of that shows up in our sex lives, whether we want it to or not. And so this idea of sort of how do we live authentically as ourselves? How do we figure out what we truly love away from the pressures of you know, what our families or communities might be telling us, that's everywhere. This is the As It Should Be podcast, and I'm your host, Tamara Jones. Join me as I speak to the people remaking the world as it should be. We discuss the role of inclusion, equity, and belonging in facing the challenges shaping our society today. Hey y'all, welcome to the As It Should Be podcast. I'm your host, Tamara Jones, and today I'm dedicating the podcast to all the young people in our lives who are just out here trying to figure it out. But in the midst of trying to figure out who they are, what they want from the world, and how to do it, they're not just dealing with parents who just don't understand, they're also dealing with stigma from social media and attacks from policymakers. So riddle me this, what if we raised an entire generation of young people to live freely and authentically as themselves? This is the question that's sitting with me and why I'm so excited to share the conversation you'll hear today. Friend, today we meet Elise Schuster. Elise is a sexuality educator with 15 years of experience in youth development and sexual health education. They spent years teaching workshops and having thousands of one-on-one educational, pleasure-based sexual health conversations before getting around to co-founding OKSO. OKSO is a nonprofit that connects young people with trained health experts to help them become comfortable with the most personal and vulnerable topics in their lives so they can live freely and authentically as who they truly are. Are you sensing a theme? Good. Well, without further ado, join me in welcoming Elise to the show. I'm so happy that we're here today. Welcome to As It Should Be. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here. I feel the same way. So to start, I think we should just start with telling your story. If you can just tell me, what was your journey to this work? I feel like I sort of have almost kind of two two journeys to the work in a way. So the first is sort of how I became a sexuality educator kind of generally. So I grew up in the Midwest and I grew up in a single parent home. My mom had been, had grown up in the church and had sort of, I think, drifted away from it a little bit. And then when my parents got divorced, she kind of really found her faith again. And so I grew up in a very 
evangelical household where that was super important. And when I was in high school, we had a, a sort of health class, what I think would have been a, a sexuality education class, my, I think my freshman year. And my mom did not allow me to take that class. And the reason why was that it was taught by someone that everyone sort of assumed was a lesbian. I don't know actually how this person identified, but I remember my mom saying, and I quote, I don't want you learning about that from one of those people. And what is interesting when I tell this story, I think what is hard for me is that I think actually my mom in the intervening years has changed. And I I don't think that she would say that today, but that is who she was then. And so I was not allowed to take sexuality education. And this was before Google existed. Like this was like me on my Apple IIe, you know, early internet days. And so I was really left to kind of figure things out for myself and was doing a lot of reading and, and trying to kind of get answers to things and became the person that my friends would come to when they had questions and sort of just started to realize that I really loved talking about it. I loved kind of creating spaces. And so I knew that I wanted to go into that field in some way. And then I think sort of the work that I do with OK So really comes from many years of really seeing the power of what happens when folks have a space where they feel like they can say the things that they're scared about or share the sort of secrets that they're holding inside and what can happen when someone has that kind of space, the kind of growth and change that can happen. And so I was doing that really a lot in person with folks and just started thinking a lot about how many people didn't have access to that, who, you know, how many people didn't have access to an in-person space. And so what if we could use technology to try to give everyone access to that? Man. So your mom wouldn't let you take this, this class and you were still kind of searching around for your own answers and things. How did you, how did you end up coming into your own about your own sexuality? I think it was a really, it was a long journey and it was a combination of a lot of different things. I was fortunate to be growing up in a town that was for the Midwest, a pretty diverse town. It was a university town. So there were lots of different types of people there whose parents had been drawn there because of the university. And so I was really fortunate to have friends in high school who were a little bit more sort of exposed to some of these ideas and concepts than I was. Um, I had friends in high school who were part of the LGBTQ community and who knew that at a, at a sort of younger age. I had the internet, although not Google. So I definitely was sort of hunting around. I absolutely, when I would go visit my dad, the, you know, there were things like my dad lived in New York City. And so there were things that I could be exposed to and see and learn about there that I, you know, couldn't at home. I 100% would look at, uh, they had the joy of sex and so basically anytime I was left alone in the apartment, <laughs> I would like make a beeline for that book. So, you know, there were things like that where it was really sort of cobbling things together. And I think that my, certainly my experience is not unique in the sense that I think that is what many people are doing even today when, when we have things like Google, we're often still left to kind of put the pieces together for ourselves. 
and also, you know, sexuality, gender identity, all of these things are so fluid often throughout our lives. And so I think that even if I had had all the information, I think I still would have experienced, experienced changes and shifts in understanding who I was and how I felt about myself, you know, throughout the course of my life. Yeah. And that's everybody, right? Like that's, that's all of us have, are trying to figure it out on our own and just cobbling together whatever we can. So as an adult, I feel like trying to figure out your personality is, is a journey like in and of itself. And you're just trying to figure out like the answer of the question of who am I and what do I believe in are the things that I feel like you're facing, I'm facing every day. And Mm. what do I want? What do I love? What what brings me joy? What am I doing because other people believe this is what is needed for me versus mm-hmm. what I'm actually what I'm actually drawn to or what I actually appreciate or love or want for myself? And yeah. answering that is scary on your own. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think it, in some ways, I think that it is the work of being a human. In some ways, I think of that as sort of our job as human beings is to figure out how do we live authentically as ourselves in this world. And I I think that the people who are on that journey are living a very different life from the people who haven't figured that out yet, who sort of haven't realized that that's the goal and who are still stuck in all of the kind of shoulds and musts and judgmental things of, you know, all of the ways that we grow up. And it is really, I really do think that it is, you know, we often have a tendency in our world to kind of put forward this idea that we have to have things figured out, right? We tend to see things as a destination, as a goal, instead of as a journey. We often also do this thing where we sort of take things like sex and we like compartmentalize them. We sort of put them over to the side and we treat them like they're somehow different than the rest of our lives. But what I actually really feel is that our sexuality in some ways is sort of a microcosm of the rest of our lives. So we bring all of the things that we believe about ourselves, that we believe about how we interact with other people, about what it means to be a good person, about what it means to communicate with someone else like all of that shows up in our sex lives whether we want it to or not and so this idea of sort of how do we live authentically as ourselves how do we figure out what we truly love away from the pressures of you know what our families or communities might be telling us that's everywhere yeah that's everywhere in our lives right and it never goes away to the extent that there are always going to be people in our lives, whether that's a romantic partner or our families or friends or someone else who are trying to tell us, well, that you know, this is what you should be doing. And that might be about how we keep our home, or it might be about how we have an orgasm, or it might be how we dress and, you know, express our gender identity. It it's everywhere. So it really, I really do see it as this like entire sort of process of of being alive, of you know, figuring those things out and being open to the idea that it can shift and change and that that's also fun instead of seeing it as being stressful, right? To be like, oh, who am I? What am I learning about myself now? How might things be shifting and changing 
even though I maybe thought I had it all figured out, but maybe we never really have it all figured out. You said that that's also fun. That could be also fun. So it hit me because I'm just like, one, I feel like the way I experience life is like when things change or when something is different or I no longer appreciate something the way that I did before, or I no longer feel the same way that I did about something that I did before, that to me feels scary. And it doesn't, Mm. and it's never been approached as an idea that that could be fun. Like that could be something that you can explore and that you can enjoy exploring and it gives you something new to to try and to do. And that's never been how I've ever, it's like no one's ever said that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these are the things, right? Like I really think, you know, we grow up when we're kids, we get so many messages from, you know, especially our parents, but people who are around us that we kind of incorporate into our beliefs without any conscious knowledge of that. And then it, there's a, there's this amazing book called soul with soul without shame that talks a lot about this, which is this idea that like we have this inner judge that is telling us how we're supposed to think and feel about everything. And that that inner judge is not us, but it is this like conglomeration of the messages that we've been given. And so it's very easy to imagine, right? An inner judge that says like, oh, it's not, this is not a good, it's not a good thing that something is changing. It's a scary thing that something is changing, right? You can't approach this with curiosity or with excitement. I think the other thing that we don't really teach people how to do is how to hold two sort of contradictory things at the same time. So the idea that something can be exciting and scary and that both of those things can coexist. And that, you know, I think we often have this experience of like, well, if I feel scared, then it is only scary. And it can't be, you know, what is this excitement? I don't understand it. Instead of saying like, no, it is possible for me to feel two totally opposite things at the same time and like inhabit both of those things, right? I feel at times hopeless about the world and hopeful at the same time. (laughs) And we can hold both of those things, the despair and the joy. So I think that, again, we there maybe are places in our lives where we're taught that we can do that, but other places in our lives where it's seen as not being okay, where, you know, things we sort of expect things to be more black and white, or we've been told that we should kind of have things figured out, where there's not as much space for that kind of movement, that kind of curiosity, and sometimes that ambiguity or that duality of like a sort of, we live in a very much like an either or yeah. kind of world. And that happens a lot with sexuality and gender. And so I think one of the things that I find really amazing about really thinking about these kinds of topics is that it asks us to step into a world that is a both and world. Like what if all of this was true? What would that mean? And that can, that in and of itself can feel a little bit like, wait, what? Because it asks us to totally shift a mindset that we maybe have got grown quite comfortable with. Oh man. And so like you're a parent, right? I am. <laughs> <laughs> and something that you were talking about is how like what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about the world. A lot of that 
comes from messaging that we got from from our childhood, from lots of people, but especially from our parents, one of the biggest influences that we have in our lives, especially if your parents are are there for you or they raise you in their home or if they're not, that sends a whole nother level of things that you start to believe about yourself because of a result yeah. of your parents just not being there. And so first, like, how are you navigating as a parent? I know your kid is small, very small. <laughs> like, how are you navigating <laughs> the the kind of messages and how you want your child to grow up believing about themselves, what you want them to grow up believing about themselves. How are you kind of navigating putting those messages out now? Well, it, the great thing about being a parent is that I think there it's sort of always happening. Like, I think we, again, we sort of think about it like, oh, here's my shot, right? Like I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's a parent who was like, I had to have this conversation about consent with my kid and I hope I didn't screw it up. And I was like, oh, well, even if you did, guess what? He's four. You're going to get to have that conversation hundreds <laughs> more times, right? So you you always get another chance and you always get a sort of another opportunity to think things through and to reframe what you're doing. And it starts, you know, I think this is the thing, like, there's so much, you know, brouhaha in the world about like, oh, we shouldn't be talking to kids about sex or what, you know, whatever this thing is. And I think that honestly, again, in the same, in the way that sex is a microcosm of the rest of our lives, really what we want to talk to people about is how do we figure out who we are and what we want and live authentically as ourselves, as we were just saying, how do we interact with other people in ways that are respectful in ways that allow them to live authentically as themselves. And that those are ideas that are present from the moment a kid, like from the beginning, right? That are, am I forcing you to hug your grandparent when you don't want to, you know, if you go, if you go try to hug someone, what am I like and that per, And that other kid doesn't want you to do that. How do we address that? How do we talk about body parts? How do we talk about friendships? You know, so all of those things are, are present like nearly from day one in terms of sort of how we, how we think about things, even saying to a kid, here are your choices, like even when they're two, right? So instead of being like, don't touch that, being able to say something like you can do this or you can do this, right? And, and sort of, offering options instead of just shutting things down. So there's a sort of there, I mean, it's, you know, it has various names, but there's sort of like gentle parenting. There's these kinds of frameworks that people use and talk a lot about these days. And I think for me, what it really kind of boils down to is the same through line that is happening in my work on. Okay. So, which is supporting people's emotions as authentic and valid, right? If you feel angry or sad, if you feel frustrated or disappointed, you have every right to those feelings. And that that is just a baseline, like given. However, it's what we do with those feelings that is the thing that we need to talk about, right? So when you're three, that looks like you can be as mad as you want, but you can't hit someone when you're angry. And sometimes when we're 15, that it still looks like that right? Like sometimes that's still the conversation, but it also might be, you know, when you're 15 
and you're angry, you can't call someone this word, or you can't leave without telling me or, right. So it, again, it really is sort of the same, like basic idea of helping people understand that all of our feelings deserve to be heard and, you know, deserve to exist. But it's what we do with those feelings that matter. And then I think the other piece is like, we can't control someone else. So we're not in charge of, we're not responsible for, and we can't manipulate someone else's feelings. And so that is the other thing that I think a lot about that, again, is really like such a common theme from the age of like two all the way through the rest of our lives. It, that, you know, it's not like they're having a reaction. That's their reaction. You're not responsible for it, but also you can't force someone else to feel differently. So it really, again, it comes back to like this, how do we think about ourselves? How do we think about other people? And really so much of what I think I work on with my kid who's six is the same stuff that I'm talking about to teenagers and to adults that I've spent my whole life talking about just shifted slightly. The scenarios are different. The language is a little bit simpler, but the themes are exactly the same. Yeah. So we're going to shift gears just a little bit. So the Trevor Project released a report on LGBTQ youth mental health. This is their 2020 mm-hmm. report. I mean, 2022 report. I have no idea how long they've been doing this. I know it's an annual report. Long Do you know? time. Mm. Yeah. it's They've been doing it for at least a decade, wow. I think. Yeah. 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 This year in that report, they found that 45% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide over the past year. And even more alarming, one in five trans and non-binary youth actually attempted suicide. And with youth of color representing a higher rate than their white peers in all of those categories. How did you react when you saw that report? Well, I think maybe much the same way that I react to most of this kind of news these days, which is like, not shocked at all, and also devastated, right? But, but certainly not surprised, I think, especially this year, where we've seen such an escalation of attacks on trans youth, specifically at the state levels, if you think about the Texas executive order that came down from Governor Abbott saying, you know, if you're providing gender affirming care for your kid, we can investigate you for child abuse, like those kinds of things. You know, it doesn't just affect young people living in Texas, it affects trans kids. I mean, it affected me. I, I couldn't work that day. <laughs> like, just, it was like too much. I was like, this is, it feels like such a sort of direct direct attack on who someone is and creates this environment of, of fear and, you know, justifies more outward hatred and violence towards trans folks when people in leadership support policies and advance policies like this. So given everything that's been going on, yeah, not surprised at all to hear that LGBT youth are feeling that incredible like stress and hopelessness right now. You know, the other thing that that report said was that half of young people who sought out mental health support were unable to get it. So, you know, I I think that's the, like, that's the other piece of this is like, things are so bad and there are so many young people who can't access the support they need either because 
they, you know, it's not available or because their parents won't let them, which is something that we see a lot on OK So, you know, families who really have have very stigmatized ideas about therapy and are like denying their children, you know, denying their children therapy because they don't believe in it or because they are invalidating their kids' feelings. So that's all, you know, oh, you're fine. Just get, you know, just suck it up, get over it. You don't need therapy. Like it's not that bad. So, you know, there's all of those pieces plus insurance, plus having an LGBTQ friendly provider, you know, wherever you are or being able to access it. There are so many barriers in place for young people, even who are struggling to get the support that they need. With parents not affirming their kids' emotions, not supporting their asks for help as an adult ally in that child's life, right? So like I'm an aunt, for example. I also have friends who have kids. Let's say for whatever reason, I am in the situation where I have a kid in my life who I care so deeply about and I want them to get this support, but I know that their parents do not support them going to therapy. I am not going to, you know, somehow secretly get them a therapist. I guess that's not really right. Probably not going to work. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> yeah. not going to work. But I also don't want that kid to walk through life thinking that they there's something wrong with them, right? Like that there's something that needs to be fixed about them. How, I guess, would I gently guide them towards a resource like, okay, so while making it an affirming moment rather than like making it seem as if this is something, this is something that I think might fix you, or this is something that's a deficit. And so I'm, I am going to push you towards a way to, to fix the deficit like this. I, I guess I'm, I don't necessarily have the words for what I want to say here, but I want to help them and I want to support them and I want to give them the resources in a safe way. How, Mm -hmm. how might I do Mm -hmm. that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, so the first thing I will say is that also in that report, which is like one of, this is one of my favorite sort of statistics to keep in mind, is that we know that if an LGBTQ young person has one supportive adult in their life who affirms who they are, the risk of suicide drops by 50%, which is huge, right? So like, one person, all it takes is literally one person who says, I see you and I love you for exactly who you are. So that's the first thing, right? Is that like you being that affirming adult, you are that source of support. Like you can get them connected to other things, but what they need most first and foremost is to hear from someone that they know in their lives, you are great. And I love you just as you are. So that is like baseline, baseline, the first thing to do. And then I think after that, you know, everyone's situations and every, every person is so different. So some people are very much in the closet and they're trying to hide everything. And, you know, other people are sort of out and dealing with it. And, you know, there's a lot of drama or conflict. Some folks are in the process of figuring things out. Some people feel really certain about who they are. So, even the way that an individual person who's part of the LGBTQ community might want to approach 
something like seeking out help or talking to their parents or any number of things is going to be different from person to person, really just kind of based on who they are. I tend to be, I'm again, very Midwesterner. I tend to be very like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Like that's not no conflict. Let's not talk about it. Like I'll be okay. And whereas other people are like, this is who I am. Get you, you know, much more sort of able to, to kind of take that, take that role. So I think a piece of it is really just talking to them and saying, you know, I'm here and I want to support you. Do you want to get connected to other things that are out there? I would be happy to like be the person that's helping you get connected to those things. And if so, what does that look like for you? Do you want an app on your phone? Do you want someone you can, a support group? Do you want, you know, a website? Do you like, what kinds of things feel like they might be helpful? And then really going kind of in search of those those resources. And I can certainly, you know, list some of them here, but I think, you know, really kind of help letting them drive in a way, what is going to feel like it's the most helpful to them. And if they don't know, which is totally possible, then saying, well, I can, what if I just gave you a bunch of different things to think about and there's no pressure to do or try any of them, but you can just know that they're here for you if you need them, that you're not alone. Yeah. I think we underestimate, especially teenagers. Like if you think back, right, I try to put myself in this place. Like if you think back to being a teenager, the teenage brain and the development that it's going through has this like very sort of almost unique ability to feel completely alone and to feel like I'm the only one going through this. It's this like very intense part of adolescence. And I have seen it in the middle of a global pandemic. Young people who are like, what is wrong with me? Like, why am I the only one? And I'm like, you're, but you're not the only one. There's literally 7 billion of us. (laughs) So, you know, to me, again, it's like, okay, if one, if a person can feel like they're doing a bad job of handling like lockdown, at a time when everyone is having a hard time handling lockdown and talking about it publicly, then right. That is like a window into just how easy it brain. is. I think. Yeah, yeah. To feel super alone, to feel super like no one understands, no one else is going through this. And so even just that kind of connection and offering that kind of support can make a huge, huge difference. Yeah. That just makes me think of like just being a teenager in general. So like I can straight up totally feel I remember I remember going through where I was like, I think maybe I was moving. Yeah, my mom had like forced us to move from Atlanta to Miami. And just like as a 20-something year old person, I am I I still to this day hate Miami. Like and my mom made me move from Atlanta, Georgia to Miami, Florida. And I went through like this depression for like nine months. And I deeply remember t- saying out loud to people like, no one could possibly understand the idea of moving. Like no one could possibly mm-hmm. understand. <laughs> you're the only, you're the only person who's ever had to do this. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Yep. <laughs> I mean, same. When I was 16, my mom got married and my whole life changed. Like we yeah. moved into his house out of the house I'd grown up in. And it was the same, like same exact. I totally remember being like, oh, no one can ever understand what, what I mean. I'd stayed in the same town. I was in the same town. <laughs> <Just> like, 
You moved but to it was a different like, house and maybe a different school. Moved to a different. Well, I still I got to go to my same school, but my sister had to switch schools. Uh, it was a whole anyway. But like, <laughs> and I refused. I refused to switch schools. Actually, I was like, no, I will keep. I will keep going to the same school with my friends. Like, you will not be taking me away from this. But it, you know, but exact same thing. It is a. I think really just a part of, you know, being a teenager is your brain changing from a child's brain to an adult brain. And there are actual, I have learned this over the time that I've worked with young people, there are real physiological changes in the brain that happen during that time that are triggered by puberty. So there's like our neural connections get faster. For instance, there's this like myelin sheathing thing that happens. There's like pruning of neurons that's going on. There's, you know, the developed, like the prefrontal cortex. So the part of our brain that can think about consequences that can sort of make logical decisions. That's not done developing until we're 25. So all of that is, you know, all happening during those years. And so it makes a lot of sense that, you know, all of those kinds of struggles and concerns and feelings are, you know, are all like in a jumble in those moments. Oh my gosh. You know how you said two things can exist at once and mm-hmm. like two completely opposite things can exist at once. One of the things in that that Trevor Project survey that we were talking about that occurred to me as two things can totally exist at once is they made it a point to not just talk about the fact that, that kids are struggling, but also that kids are experiencing so much joy. And the thing is, when I when I saw that, in my head initially, I was like, oh, kids can both be struggling and experience joy at the same time. But I'm like, well, actually, kids can both experience injustice and experience joy at the same time. Yes. Because like, I'm not just <clears throat> sad because I'm sad. Like, I'm not just sad because like, I cut my finger or like, I did something and I'm not enjoying the consequences of the of these things kids are reacting to the way that they are being treated and that in and of itself is an injustice but the fact that it's actually legislators that are targeting them makes it a more societal injustice (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i'm 15 and having to figure out how to navigate that Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, when I used to do like direct in-person work with young people, one of the things that I would do was sort of the initial conversation that we would have with someone when they came to this place. And very frequently, a young person would say to me, I think I might be bipolar. And I'd say, okay, can you tell me a little bit more about that? They'd say, well, I feel really happy. And then I feel really sad. And then I feel really happy. And I'd be like, yeah, that's, you're 16. Like, <laughs> Right. You're, you're not bipolar. You're just 16. Like that's just a super normal thing. So I think it's really interesting to think about how those kinds of emotional, you know, like there's a sort of bigger emotional swing that you're having at that age. The, the highs are really high and the lows are really low and things kind of compress a bit as we get into our twenties. And, you know, we still feel joy and we still feel despair, but it's not this like huge kind of roller coaster of emotion. And then, and so you take that and then you layer on top of it a world where people are experiencing real true oppression 
and injustice. And I mean, you know, what a thing to try to be navigating, right? That like you have your own just baseline, even if think the world was great, like you still would feel really sad, <laughs> like a good proportion of the time during your teenage years. And so how do we help support young people through that? And I think that, you know, so much of often when we approach young people, we tend to approach it sort of from a like problem based view and not that necessarily the young person is the problem, but we're very focused on whatever the problem is and how can we solve the problem or fix the problem. And we do that with everybody in our lives, right? So it's hard to sit with someone else's pain. It's hard to, you know, our friend comes to us to tell us something and you know, it's very common for people to say, oh, I'm sure it's not that bad or it'll, it's okay. It's, it'll probably be fine, right? You're, it, it's probably not that big of a deal. We do that all the time. And what we're doing is really soothing ourselves and trying to help ourselves feel better because it's really hard to sit with someone else who's going through something and be like, man, this just sucks, right? Like I have to kind of take this on myself. Like, I don't want to do that. No, no, no. Right. So we, we sort of self soothe by trying to kind of diminish someone else's pain. And I think often when we think about supporting young people, we kind of do the same thing, right? We, we want to feel like there's hope and things are okay and we're fixing it. And so we jump to the problem and we forget the really holistic view of everybody that we all have moments of joy and happiness. And we all have things that, that make us laugh and things that, you know, make us want to dance and whatever it might be. And so I think the more I so appreciate the Trevor project for including that, because I think it's so important for all of us to sort of never lose sight of that incredible joy that is created. And I think the other thing that I think about Alok, one of my favorite sort of thinkers and writers on this is a non-binary person named Alok. And they, they have a great Instagram account and they, they're on podcasts and they're just incredible. And they talk a lot about how, in some ways, I, the reason why folks who are part of the LGBTQ community can feel so threatening to other people is because we are living our joy. We are trying to live authentically as ourselves. We are trying to put away those judges and the people who tell us what we can't do. And we are trying to embrace the joy of being who we truly are. And for other people who have not figured out how to do that, that feels really scary and threatening. Like, how dare you? How dare you show me what's possible that I can't actually access for myself. Not to say that everybody is LGBTQ, right? But just the idea of sort of living authentically as who you are and feeling like you're cut off from that and seeing someone else who's doing it, someone else who's showing you that it's possible and you kind of are going to hate that person a bit. I mean, again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Anything that we are trying to explore, we send the message to each other that that is scary. And we internalize the message that that is scary. So don't do that. <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah. don't do that. I don't care what it is that you're exploring. Like, this is a dumb, dumb, dumb example. And I am not trying to equate no. anything just so for the, for the people in the back, I like, <laughs> I'm attempting to roller skate now. <laughs> like, I am Yay! now, 
I'm attempting to rollerblade and my husband took me out rollerblading yesterday and it was on a street that had an incline and like, so it inclines and then you go down. And so Mm -hmm. on rollerblades, that is literally, so in his mind, he's just like, this, this is fun. We are exploring, seeing what it feels like to like skate sideways or go down, down a hill or do that. In my head, I was in mortal fear. (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. in mortal fear the entire time. My legs were shaking. I kept falling down because of the fact that I was scared, not because of the incline, just because of the the fear. I was just, I just would just drop. I would just collapse to my knees (laughs) 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 because it's safer for me to just fall over than it is for me to explore what it feels like to fly through a street on rollerblades. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think this is, this is the thing. And I actually, I love that you said fly, right? Because I think that like, there's this thing that can happen for us, which is that we sort of tell ourselves a story about what is going to happen. That is a story and nothing else. And the story comes from the judge, right? Like the judge makes up the story and, and then we're like, yep, that's it. That's reality. And we just like sort of take, right? Like we just, it's like the judge hands us a piece of paper and we're like, okay, those are my instructions for like how I'm going to do things. And I think that it is so similar, right? When we imagine sort of, I think for some folks, like the idea of an identity shifting or changing can feel that same way. And it feels like, you know, there's not a lot of room for things to be a little bit messy, for a while and to fall down and to get back up and to, you know, all of those pieces. And I think that, you know, the idea that it's sort of like, I can either be not moving. If I'm not moving, I will be flying. Right. Which is like maybe the most like intense way to think about that kind of movement that it's sort of like, I'm, it's either this or it's this like very intense version of this when probably the reality is that there are many paths kind of in between that. But how do we, how do we help our brains recognize that that's the story that we're telling ourselves, what, whatever that's about, right? Like any new thing that we're trying, how do we sort of just see that that's the story and create some space from that and say like, okay, I see that story, right? I see you over there telling me that like, it's going to be bananas and super intense if I let myself do this thing. And how do we kind of create that space to take the first step or the second step or, but it's really hard. I think the other thing is that like, because we're learning it when we're, we're kids, often the things that we do as adults served us as children. They were how we kept ourselves safe. They were how we navigated whatever was going on in our lives, whatever family dynamics were going on. And now that we're adults, those things are maybe not serving us anymore. But we learned that over years of time. So it's probably going to take us years to unlearn those things too. But what we do to ourselves is like, we recognize that that's what's happening. And then we beat ourselves up for not being able to change right away. And that just makes everything worse. Instead of saying, okay, I see that this is a thing that I do. I probably like can't come by it very honestly. And it was, you know, a way that I was taught growing up. And so I'm, I am working on it. 
but I don't expect myself to be able to just radically transform my entire worldview and all of my learned behaviors overnight. Right. But we totally do that to ourselves. We like expect ourselves to be able to change. And I see that with young people where like, you know, I'm so obviously like so thrilled about increased visibility for the LGBTQ community on television and in movies and music and, you know, everywhere. And the weird sort of dark side to that, so to speak, is this idea that you have to have it all figured out. And so I often talk to young people on OKSO who are like, well, I have to put myself into my box. Like, I have to figure it out. I'm like, no, you don't. You don't. You can just be, right? It's just be. Just notice who are you interested in? How are you feeling today, tomorrow, like a month from now? And But we sort of see this world where what we get fed is, you know, only success stories, right? We get fed only people who know who they are. We get fed only people who figured it all out. And it's very rare that we get to see stories that talk about the messiness of it all and help us understand that piece of life. And so it makes total sense that it's like something that's really hard for all of us to do. And even when we do talk about the the messiness, it's the hero's journey. The messiness is a part of the hero's journey. So it's like, you're telling me that I went through this thing and now I'm out on the other side and now I'm this amazing, successful, amazing person. But sometimes I'm just a mess right now. I'm just, I'm just experiencing mess. That's just it. Like I don't need the problem with that. The reason why I feel like the hero's journey really like isn't serving us in this way is because it's reinforcing the idea that I need to get to a destination. Yep. The point is the journey, isn't it? Why is it that I have to come out the other side as a hero? Why can't I just be regular degular? I'm I'm really waiting for somebody to just let me be regular degular so I can just like... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. A hundred percent. And I think I saw this thing the other day where someone was talking about the idea of a spiral and that, you know, we, instead of thinking about our lives as like this line where we're headed down this path and there's some, some place where it stops, right? Or even the idea that progress, progress, and I'm going to even put that in quotes, but that like, we need to be like making linear changes or like cumulative changes, right? That we so often think about things that way. But I saw this idea that like, really, maybe life is a spiral, and we come back around to the same places but we come back around maybe, you know, not in the, ex- are we in the exact same place? No, we're not because we have everything that we experienced while we were on, you know, the journey from where we were before to where we are now. So we may come back around. And I think that we do sometimes say, you know, like, Oh, like imagine, you know, a relationship ends and we're like, here I am single again. Right. And we, again, we tell ourselves this story of like, I am in the exact same place, but we aren't, we never are because we have everything that that relationship taught us and everything that we experienced while we were in it and everything we've learned about ourselves over the course of that. And so, yes, we are single, but we are not single again, right. In that same way. And so I think it's such a, I I really loved it as a way of thinking about life, right. Which is, that is this kind of ongoing cyclical thing where we're, we're never going to not, be ourselves. We're just going to be 
ourselves learning and growing and shifting constantly until we don't exist anymore. It will be, I feel like I think about my grandma in her nineties and there was a moment (laughs) I never talked to her about what I did. She, I don't know if she knew, but I, I like really never talked to her about sort of sexuality education stuff. And I went to visit her by myself one time and my aunt who lived with her had gone to church. And so it was just her and me in the house all by ourselves for a few hours. It was the only time in my life that I've ever really been just her and me. Cause every time we were together, it was, you know, a big family gathering. And I was in my thirties, early thirties, maybe late twenties. And she, all of a sudden at the age of like 97 started talking about how my grandpa had been married before he married her, but she had never been with anyone else before, you know, it was the 1930s and how she was always worried that she had never sort of satisfied him. Like she started talking about her sex life and I was like, (laughs) it's just like gobsmacked. Her grandchild. (laughs) Her grandchild. But like the one grandchild, right. Of, of all of her grandchildren, she picked me. And I was like, yeah, I'm the one who can hear this. Like, give me your story, like unload this on me because like, yes, like I am the, you, I don't know if she knew or she just, it was, I don't know if I was giving off vibes. Like, I don't know what it was, but to see her at that age, like trying to talk about something that I think she probably had never, ever talked about with anybody else and to be like sort of processing that it was phenomenal and to see that like at 97 she had made peace with so many things but she still had these like fundamental worries right that were she was still herself right she had like she had learned so much and also had this like deep need to feel like she had done a good job right in her marriage it is like I will never forget that moment because it really was like, okay, this is a journey literally until the end Yeah, that we are on. It does not stop because here she is, <laughs> 97, <laughs> telling this to me. Yeah, it was incredible. So talk to me about how you are finding joy these days. It is an ongoing practice, right? I think that's really, that's one of the things that I was journaling about this this morning where I was like, what am I doing right now? And I think I have learned a couple of things as I think many of us have over the past couple of years about, you know, how do we find when we have to slow down? How do we find joy when we're not distracting ourselves? And I think what's great and hard about kids is that, you know, we were talking about like, you're a teenager, you're on this roller coaster, then things kind of kind of settle down. Then when you have kids, you're right back on the roller coaster again. So, you know, there are these like incredibly wonderful moments that I get to have with my kid. And the other thing that I've figured out about myself is that I really need to be outside. And so I am fortunate enough to live in a place where I'm about a five minute walk from water. And it's not, you know, is it the most gorgeous view of my life? Like, no, but I'm near trees and grass and water and I can hear birds and watch herons and egrets and things fly by. And I bought a hammock. And so one of the things that gives, I, it was hilarious because I was like sitting in the park on a blanket and I saw like three or four different people bring hammocks to this park with lots of trees and like set up. And I was like, aunt pulled out my phone and ordered a hammock while I was sitting at the park. <laughs> 
That's like that's like scrolling through Instagram and seeing a video and being like, okay, this is happening immediately. <laughs> yeah. But like yeah. it IRL. was like, <laughs> like it was like a, an Instagram ad, but like just in my life around me. So <laughs> I bring my hammock and I set it I paid attention to which trees people were using and I set it up in those same trees and I look at the water and I listen to the birds and I read a book and that it for me that is one of the kind of biggest things that is bringing me joy. I think the other thing maybe is just, I try to stay like as connected as I can to people who are helping and that it can be really little or it can be really big, but I get to do that every day on okay. So I get to see the like tremendous compassion and love that the experts on okay. So have for the people that we're talking to. So you know, I get to experience that, but also really trying to keep up with, you know, the ways that people are helping in, in the community, because I think it's in those moments when I'm like, oh gosh, everything is so hard and everything is, you know, so big and how are we going to do this? And then I'm like, oh, look at this amazing project that this mutual aid group is doing in my town, right? Like those moments bring me joy knowing that that work is happening. What if everything okay so wants to happen in the world? What if it works? What does the society we live in look like? I love this question so much. (laughs) So the way that I will start to answer this question is to tell a brief story, which is that several years ago, we were doing a branding workshop, trying to kind of discover our brand voice, right? Like what's our tagline? What are our sort of keywords, all that kind of stuff, which I have no idea. I mean, I'm a sexuality educator. I don't know. I was like, what was happening? And we needed help. We needed help because I was like, I don't quite know how to get from all the thoughts in my head to like what this means. So in this workshop, one of the questions that they asked was, and we were just, you know, it was a bunch of marketing, like branding folks from an agency. And they were like, who is your brand's nemesis? Right. If you're, you know, who's your brand's nemesis? And I don't know what they were expecting me to say, but without a moment's hesitation, I said, oh, it's white hegemonic Christianity. And they all started laughing. That is such a vibe. One, that is something I would so imagine you saying. Two, I'm like, that is such a vibe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they all, they like all sort of were like, ha ha ha. And I was like, no, I'm not joking though, is the thing. Like I'm fully, fully serious in this moment. And so, you know, in some ways, like, Yes, what we're doing with okay, so is having one-on-one conversations with people. But I think ultimately what I think about is what would it look like? What would the world look like if we could raise an entire generation of young people who lived authentically as themselves, who could get out from under the shame, under the fear, right? Who could get away from the shoulds, who knew how to communicate well, who knew how to love well, right? Who didn't feel like they had to have power over other people to create meaning in their lives. Like all of those are all tied into this, right? So I often really think like, I'm trying to shift a culture. Like I'm trying to build a world that sees the value in what I'm doing, which is a weird. I mean, I think I'm not the only person who faces that kind of uphill battle, but it really, to me, is a world where, you know, there's a world with fewer sexual assaults, a world with fewer unplanned pregnancies, 
a world where no one's feeling like terrified to tell their partner that they have chlamydia, a world where you can come out to your friends and know that you're going to be accepted and loved. I mean, it really, it almost feels kind of impossible to like, I have to really like hold that in the world that we live in and really try to imagine like, what would a world look like where it's just completely okay to be exactly who you are. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you didn't enjoy it, well, you know, you ain't got to worry about it. Don't even worry about it. Bye, y'all.